to be offended, first of all, to explain why I should be paid for the work that I do, to then also have my trauma on display to no end. No, academic institutions have known for a while now. You know, they don't need to hear from you, from me, from um, Dr. Oni Blackstock, Dr. Uche Blackstock, Stella, Ifioma, Tazon. These are just a few within my friend circle. They don't need to hear from us how to do this. They need to own the fact that it's not a priority or it is. And if it is a priority, you see that through budget changes, program changes, tangible, obvious, written down with with internal control and monitoring, advancement and promotion. Without that, you don't care. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about frame of mind. How can art bring us hope, joy, and a sense of wellness? It makes us feel connected. It makes us feel loved. Your whole soul opens up. Art saved my life and kept me out of trouble, kept me on the right path. We're tapping into the minds of people who have deeply connected with art in their own lives to find out how art can be a tool for well-being. Join us in listening to their stories on Frame of Mind, an art and wellness podcast from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining, and I am Trey excited to bring you today's conversation. I'm speaking with the Director of Health for the City of St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mati Lichweo Davis is a public health expert. She is Zimbabwean-born, American-based, and internal medicine infectious disease physician. Within infectious disease, she has done work in HIV and STIs. STIs are sexually transmitted infections. She's particularly engaged with the community, addressing health disparities among people from historically marginalized groups. Now, when we get to the conversation, Mati is talking about public health, why public health, and how she got there. So you were uh, ahead of your time regarding the MPH. Now a bunch of med schools, you know, the feeling is that medical education can be accomplished in three years rather than four. So that one year, many med schools are having their students get an MPH or an MBA or a master's of education or a master's of health design. Uh, but you, uh, you were ahead of your time. Yeah, and that's why mentorship and sponsorship is so key, right? That would have never happened for me if I didn't have someone in my life who had that experience, that knowledge, that expertise to be able to tell me that there's no way I would have conceived of that on my own. And again, so many people from black and brown communities in medicine don't have that. They don't have access to mentors who, um, A, um, invest in them in the same way that they do their white counterparts and, and, and B, are, are empowered to then make those opportunities available. I've definitely, uh, I have a, a level of privilege in that. And it's unacceptable that it is privilege because it should exist for all of us. You on this great segment that I listened to of St. Louis on the Air, and they were speaking to you about masks. So audience members are wondering, well, Risa, ask about masks. Ask about, so what's happening right now um, in St. Louis, and what are your feelings about mask and masking? It's really interesting because this is an, a, a great example of how um, public health is not just about data. It doesn't have the luxury of doing that, right? So, uh, you know, the data that came around the policy change from the CDC, very valid. How that translates, though, into what I believe is equitable um, and responsible public health, that was the challenge for us, right? So we saw a couple of weeks ago the F- the CDC um 
sort of roll out new metrics for which we should use uh, these new categorizations of low risk, um, uh, medium risk and high risk in regards to COVID, and that we should be using the low and medium risk um, as recommendations, their recommendations to lift mass mandates. Um, very interesting because in isolation, sounds great, right? Um, and what happened was I actually am the director of one of the last cities in the U.S. to have a mass mandate um, and still very felt very strongly that we should be um, at least strongly recommending, if not mask, uh, mandating masking indoors for reasons all of us in, in science, medicine, and public health are very well aware of, right? But how do you argue with that data? And again, it's because you cannot look at that data in isolation. Those very same recommendations also had a list of 24 um, high-risk conditions for which the answer was, if you have one of these, you are at high risk, speak to your doctor. You know, I'm a very privileged person. I'm a director of health. I'm a doctor. Even if I wanted to speak to my physician today, I would be scheduled. And I know it would be at least a couple of weeks before I could even speak to my medical provider on the phone. What more someone without the level of privilege I have, um, or the same level of high, um, of, of self-advocacy or, or health literacy, um, and not to speak of the millions of people who are uninsured or don't even have a provider, right? And then epidemiologists, a lot of us looked at those 24 health conditions, and those easily comprise uh, 60 to 65% of the conversation, at, of, of the population, I beg your pardon at least, right? And so the question then becomes, are we comfortable shifting from a community prevention approach to a, to a personal one, right? Um, and for me as the health director of this city, looking at um, who the vulnerable were upon us, what the data had showed us for, throughout this pandemic, I was not comfortable with a narrative that just said we're lifting a mass mandate. The politics then comes into play because you cannot be empowered to keep a mandate in with data that says otherwise. So I was put in a position where I had to lift the mask mandate, but the health department immediately um, said we still strongly recommend masking indoors and and paired that with a public health campaign to explain to people why. Can't, very confusing. I'm not going to lie to you. And so as a leader, um, definitely call the federal government out and, and our national leaders um, around this and how difficult it is is to make these decisions at a national level and not be as thoughtful about how this plays out in local jurisdictions because we're the one we're the ones who have to roll these things out. So will not lie to you, I don't think it was a perfect way that this was addressed, but was definitely put in a position where I had to simultaneously lift a mass mandate um, whilst making it very clear, putting policy statements in red, in boxes with stars all around on our websites, press uh, releases um, and social media platforms that in the city of St. Louis, we still highly recommend indoor masking. Yeah. So you're the director of health for the city of St. Louis. Do you have a network of other directors of health with whom you speak? And you have a listserv? Yeah, I wish I did. I came into this thing and it's like, I, I, I there probably is well-established ways, but I didn't get a um, transition in the same way that other people um, may. Uh, I was kind of figuring it out as I go, having to ask my own questions. I, in, a, in, a, in, in trying to be proactive, actually went on a listening tour and reached out to commissioners and health directors across the country who were more than obliging to meet and give advice. But it was difficult because, you know, you meet with Dr. Dave Chosky, who's done a phenomenal work in New York, for example, during his tenure, which he recently um, uh, stepped down from. And he has a budget six times the size of mine and a health department four to five times the size. So whilst that, you know, whilst his advice 
was incredibly valuable, not directly applicable, right? And so I've recently now been reaching out to commissioners and health directors from cities of similar sizes and try to make those networks exist. Uh, but it's difficult because if I'm being honest with you, public health is in a really fraught and really difficult place. We're all struggling. You know, I inherited a um, a health department that was depleted. Uh, t- uh, people had left. Um, they're burnt out. They're underpaid and overworked. And so we're constantly just trying to keep afloat, let alone have the bandwidth and the time to really make those connections and to prioritize them. We're just really trying to keep public health alive. I have in the last couple of months watched directors and regions around me quit um, under the pressures. In Missouri especially, um, we started to be in a very, very real way. Um, public health was under attack. Um, the attorney general uh, suing um, uh, uh, suing public health departments um, in an attempt to target specifically mask mandates and using legislature that actually put the foundation of how we um, how we implement our public health strategies for basic things in communicable disease um, were brought into question. Our ability to support schools in masking, you know, they, they started to directly um, um, sue schools. And so the pressure of that and what that did to undermine public public health and really to break people who already were doing so much with so little has been devastating. So I'll be honest with you and say there isn't a lot le- a lot left, you know. Um we're using our our 24 hours of our day just to stay afloat and to, to try to keep public health doing basic things which is really a tragedy. Um and there's a lot that we need to to build back from uh from the devastation of what this pandemic has done to public health. I really appreciate that candor, that uh, that honesty about uh, the way it is. And, you know, many industries are struggling. And uh, I think to know uh, what you just shared in terms of public health and public health leaders, I think is important for people to know and realize. Because meanwhile, you know, COVID wave after wave, there's still HIV, there's still STIs. Um, and there's still recently, I read in the news that there are, are making uh, diagnosed cases of polio in Israel. So, you know, if you were to um, shift your attention for a minute away from COVID, what gets your next priority attention? Yeah, it's individualized from region to region. You know, here in St. Louis, I, I knew that taking on this job, I had to have both COVID and non-COVID priorities top of mind in parallel. I didn't have the luxury of picking one or the other. Here, we know that gun violence um, is has, is a public health crisis. Um, St. Louis, having been in you know the top number of cities in the country for many years uh, for which um, gun violence um, has plagued the city. And so violence prevention, one of the t- key non-COVID um, priorities here. Behavioral health, we all know that that was a priority before um, and mental illness has been exacerbated considerably um, across all communities within the United States. So behavioral health and mental health um, is another priority. And then um, chronic disease, because like you said, a lot of that went to the wayside to prioritize COVID, but high blood pressure, diabetes, um, none of these things went away during the pandemic. What's a tragedy for me is to give you an example of just how fractured public health is. I inherited a department for which not one person um, is employed to do any one of those three priorities. There's no bureau, there's no section, there's no budget. And so I've had to exclusively use ARPA dollars, which are COVID um, emergency relief funds, um, to 
subcontract out the work that should be prioritized within a health department. How can you have a health department that isn't even empowered to do the priorities for which it has? We have a communicable disease, we have environmental health, but we are so depleted that those priorities don't actually exist. They subcontract it out. And when you subcontract out, while that may be a superficial solution, um, it dilutes your ability to really have a strategic plan, to really have control because you're at the mercy of how other, how these other external partners and entities, um, execute these functions, um, while still having to have internal monitors and controls that again, you don't have because you're so depleted. And so it's a really dysfunctional way that we're having to work. Um, I had to really come to terms with the fact that a lot of my job for the first year, at least, is going to be repairing um, internal value building, uh, building work capacity, um, and then focusing on building that internal uh, presence and work capacity to support those those priorities. It's a really challenging time. I won't lie to you. Yeah. So, um, Mati, you have a voice. And one of two favorite questions I have for my guests are, vis-a-vis the title, The Visible Voices, when did you first realize you had a voice? And when did you start using that voice? And I always separate it because I actually think as women, as an intersectional woman, those two aha moments often come at different times. I don't know. I think it's, I can only be transparent and say when I said my mother is the hero of my story, I meant that in every way. I've just never known a time when I wasn't aware of the fact that I had a voice and I wasn't empowered to use it. Um, as early as being five, six, seven um, in Harare, Zimbabwe. And I'll tell you that the difference then was that I lived in the country where I was part of the majority, where there was nothing um, untoward about seeing um, Black people our black women um, thrive. But then I had a mother who was very intentional about education because while misogyny um, was a, 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 a reality in my culture as it is across the world, my mother put me in an all girls uh, boarding school. So the I was surrounded by black queens like myself with natural hair, with beautiful brown skin, who studied physics, who studied chemistry, who studied biology. And while that was an anomaly, maybe in general across the country and maybe the continent at the time, it wasn't an anomaly in my immediate environment. So I was empowered very early. You know, my mother gave me the gift of books. I love to write. Um, And so I always thought that I would be an author um, prior to that aha moment around medicine at the age of 15. And I think having this very unique skill set of being an extrovert, um, loving literature, and so really getting a masterful knowledge of how words um, are powerful and can be used to advocate on behalf of those that need. Um, and then having a mother who put me in spaces where it was just, I, I actually crashed a little bit when I came to the U.S. because I wasn't prepared for me to be considered other, for me to not be seen as valuable. Um, I, I had not had that experience. I thrived in a culture that that valued um, matriarchy and a school where it was only young women and we were empowered to be and do and 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 and, and have whatever it is we were willing to work hard for um, and all of my colleagues from Arundel School in Zimbabwe are just leaders across the world it's this beautiful and and it really fights back on the fallacy that low-income countries beget um, 
um, um, failure, beget um, a lack of expertise. Uh, if I, it's the opposite, to be <laughs> to be honest, you know. Um, while the economy has and and the political sort of landscape has failed us, the jewel of my country has always been its people. We are um, the country's. Uh, uh, gem, the, 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 the best kept secret. And I think we were blessed after co- uh, colonialism to have an educational foundation that was so strong and that brought up dozens of young women. In fact, if you were to interview other Arundel grads, I wasn't even a special standout person. Um, and I would even say, um, even as the director of health and even with everything I've accomplished, I can name at least 20 other Arundel girls who I think have done way more. Two of them are my best friends. Um, so I think I, I'm very fortunate that that made for a very different experience and, and knowing my voice and valuing it. If anything, I lost my voice for a while um, within the sort of toxic um, systemic and institutional systemic, um, I, I mean, uh, misogyny and racism that I experienced once I came into the United States and had to really heal from that in recent years to empower myself again to sort of take the stage that I now have. You answered a question that I had as you were speaking is sort of, you came to the United States and boom. So what did you do? And, you know, how have you sought the recovery? You know, it was hard. Um, All of a sudden I was a minority. Um, My intersectionality meant I saw that in three different ways, right? I was a woman. Um, So got the misogyny piece, being black and the racism piece, being um, an immigrant and the xenophobia piece. Um, and mentors at different stages of my journey, whether it was in undergrad, medical school, or in fellowship, telling me, don't, don't, you just, you work harder. You have to be twice as good. You have to work hard, and that's your answer. Don't speak up. Don't tell, don't talk about the micro and macroaggressions, because then, uh, as a woman, you're emotional, right? Um, as a Black person, you're a problem, and you're, you're aggressive. Um, and as an immigrant, you're just making excuses because you can't hack it, right? Um, if I said something happened to me because of any one of my intersectionalities, I was playing a card. But throughout my experience, if I was rewarded for my success, for my brilliance, um, it was only because I was black, right? Every promotion, it was always with a joke because if you laugh at the end of it, it must just be in light fun and it's not a problem. So while you know they made you the program director, the associate program director because they needed a black face, well, you know it makes them look good to have you in a position of leadership. So it was interesting because my experience was other people could use the same cards against me, but apparently it was a problem when when I did. Um, and I just wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to get it from three different ways. Um, academia failed me. Um, there were no real, um, um, real and sustainable models for sponsorship and um, for, for mentorship and sponsorship for people who are other like me. If you're not in academics, if you're not a basic scientist in the traditional way, a clinical scientist, um, it's not rewarded. It's way harder to find those pathways and to see them rewarded um, in equitable ways. Um, and certainly, even once I showed my value as a community engaged person, as a person who had these very unique gifts and talents, I felt like I was begging for scraps. Um, and so it was the, the courage that I think my mother had instilled within me, these incredible mentorship relationships that I had maintained over the years, um, that finally made me leave 
in self-advocacy and whilst begging, begging to be promoted from a clinical assistant to an assistant professor after three years being on the board of health for a major city, having accomplished so much from a community engaged space because I wasn't the cookie cutter, didn't have publications, right? Wasn't doing it in the way that is valued. Um, I was told it was almost how dare she, how dare she, how dare she not even be grateful that we kept her in these spaces despite her not being excellent in these um, in these antiquated metrics for success that are that limit people. And I was told your career in no uncertain terms, I was gaslit on the way out. Um, I was told by 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 um, concerned faculty um, that were supposed to be my covering. You know, we're concerned about your career. Your career is over. You know, you leave a WashU, where do you go? And we have real concerns that you won't be okay. Four months later, I was the director of health for the city. And so what is that? You know, and while many in academics will say, well, of course, she can't hack it in academics. She had to hack it there. The reality is we have a real problem when someone can leave a major academic institution as a clinical instructor with a, with a long-term track record of those types of micro and macro aggressions and four months later be the director of health for a major city and be and be doing well right we have failed in some way and so it was the self-advocacy but i almost hate giving that message because i don't believe the message to young and upcoming trainees and black and brown people should be that the only way that you can survive is to leave um, what happened to me is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that I turned into a victory, but I should not have been put in a position to leave. I should have had the choice to decide if I wanted to thrive in academic spaces that I had earned the right to be in versus if I wanted to be elsewhere. I wasn't given that choice. Your story, uh, what you shared regarding leaving academics is um, increasingly being heard and being spoken and also not uncommon. And I think within uh, communities of women, communities of uh, people of color, these stories, these aggressions that you describe are very well known. And I think what is changing is that people are now speaking aloud, using their voice to let the lay world um, and the non-medical world and even the medical world that has decided not to look and see and hear what's going on become aware. And the question is, do you think it's going to make a difference? Do you think, do you think it, people's eyes are being opened and the institution of medicine is motivated at all to change? Yeah, I'm over it. I'm over the eyes being opened and the chatting and the Black History Months where I'm invited to be a speaker and put my trauma on display for one month. Most of the time, not even honor, you know, offered an honorarium because we think it's okay to ask Black people to do this work for free. Um, and to really create these, these cultures of superficial, um, superficial interventions. Um, it's just not good enough. We have the data. We have the experiences. We have the trauma on display. And again, much like what happened last night at the Oscars, much like what's happening, um, in these confirmation hearings with Dr. Katanji Brown Jackson, our trauma should not be put on display for your lessons. It is abhorrent. Right. So at the end of the day, own the fact that you either just want to have a superficial DEI statement on your website to put a DEI office somewhere off in the corner that has barely no budget and tick some boxes for recruitment using the same the very same black people that you traumatize along the way to bring those people in 
or that you are willing to actually do what it takes, which includes budget, which includes visible pathways for promotion and advancement, which includes retention, screw recruitment, right? Because black women and men are coming in more into these spaces, but they're fleeing and they're leaving. And if we look at um, the different levels along the way in academia, you see less and less and less of us. So it is a superficial um, a superficial thing. I was actually telling my husband, I'm going to stop doing a lot of these for what? To what end? You know what I mean? To be offended, first of all, to explain why I should, you know, um, be, 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 be paid for the work that I do, um, to then also have my trauma on display to no end. No. Academic institutions have known for a while now. You know, they don't need to hear from you, from me, from um, Dr. Oni Blackstock, Dr. Uche Blackstock, Stella, Ifioma, Tazon. These are just a few within my friend circle. They don't need to hear from us how to do this. They need to own the fact that it's not a priority or it is. And if it is a priority, you see that through um, budget changes, program changes, tangible obvious, written down with with internal control and monitoring advancement and promotion. Without that, you don't care. And just say it. I, that would be more refreshing to me. But calling me, and it's so funny because the same academic institutions I left call me still. Let's let's talk about this more for another year, another two years on 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 panels. It's it's absurd and it's it's offensive. It's exhausting at this point. So. Could it change? Sure. Do I think most academic institutions want to change? No, because even the most liberal amongst them benefit directly from systemic and institutional racism and misogyny. And whether or not they're willing to face that, they do not want to see that status quo change to the extent that it does because it threatens their own existence and their own clutch on power. And I don't think that's a conversation that they're willing to have with themselves and at an institutional level yet. How then do you translate this into your communication with your children and helping them grow up to be healthy? They get to see it and breathe it and live it. It's not weird. My daughters, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've heard them say, when do we go back to the mayor's office again? You know, um, they have been able to see their mother sworn in as the director of health, the first black physician, female director of health the city has ever had. They got to be in the room. They got to play and run around in an office as if that was normalized. You know, in this household, my husband and I have normalized um, black joy, black um, self-belief, black excellence, um, and that's normalized. And so while we have to have internal conversations, I, I mean, intentional, I break your pardon, conversations about what it is to be um, a black queen, while we have to talk about um, why it's okay for them to have their hair a way there has at a time when we actually had to have a Crown Act passed in 2022, while we do have to have a lot of those intentional conversations, the rest of it is lived experience. And what a joy. But I know that that's not the same for all black and brown children. And so that is why I think a part of what I love about public health is that I get to be that auntie. I get to be that auntie as the director of health and one that they can relate to when I go to vaccine clinics or when I speak in schools and I get to be intentional about conversations about what that looks like to let them know and not to set them up for success that my journey is not one of perfection it's one of a lot of failure a lot of circum you know um, uh, mistakes a lot of self-doubt and that and yet still you can be excellent and yet still an imperfect journey can be honored um because of 
of mentorship, sponsorship, and hard work. And I love, I love to go on those platforms and destroy the fallacy that if you just pull yourself up by your bootstrings because, you know, all old white men just worked hard, when I'm now very well aware of the power of a phone call, right? Of a power of sitting at the same table with someone and saying, hey, can you hang around for five extra minutes? Can you, can you do me a favor? My, my niece, my nephew, my trainee didn't get an interview. And can you speak to Bob and, and Charlie and, you know, Emma and make sure that they squeeze her in? We know that that's how business is done. You know what I mean? And the difference between one excellent candidate and another is access. So I'm unapologetic about completely blowing the lid off of that and shaming those who would make people in minoritized communities feel like they're not good enough because they don't know how to take a standardized test that data has shown to be intrinsically biased and flawed, right? That they haven't worked hard enough, right? And that we're honest about what this looks like and we create an equitable um, space and foundation for all children to thrive in this country. Mati, keep using your voice. It gets me in more trouble than you know, my friend. I don't know how to reel it in. And so I remember when the mayor interviewed me, I was shocked. I was stunned. I was like, have you vetted me? Because unfortunately, this mouth, I go into these things. I even came into this podcast internally. You're going to behave. You're going to be so together. You're going to be eloquent. You're going to, and then, you know, between with 15 minutes, you ask the right question and it's, eh, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then that's who I am. You know, this is the package. It's not a perfect package, but it's, it's an authentic package. Um, and I'm, I'm always going to be transparent, even to my detriment, I guess. What a great conversation. And before we get to the Risa wrap-up, here's a word from Dr. Casey Parker. G'day, I'm Dr. Casey Parker. Check out the Broom Docs podcast. I strive to bring excellent critical care to our rural, remote and Aboriginal people in tropical Australia. I like to translate evidence into rural healthcare. There's a lot of cases and some real cool ultrasound pearls. The Risa wrap-up. First of all, I'd like to thank Dr. Celine Gounder. Celine was nice enough to introduce me to Mati. Thanks also goes to Mati and her team. Mati, thank you so much for your voice, for speaking your truth, for joining me in conversation. And audience, I think you heard why some people are leaving medicine. It's whether or not they feel respected, whether or not they feel that they are being equally paid, whether or not they are able to truly use their voice. See you next week. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.